Good afternoon. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe, coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. We are at the end of October, almost to November. It's a beautiful day in Indiana today. Uh, very, very sunny, and we're only two weeks away from the elections. All you political uh, cronies out there, et cetera, et cetera, and junkies, uh, we soon will be having a big election, right? And uh, I, I know we're all excited about that. Today, um, I would like, first of all, to thank University of Colorado and Colorado Springs, the faculty and staff, for supporting our show and uh, the wonderful work that the radio station, Radio UCCS, does uh, for the community and for the country. And so uh, just a, a plug for that. Also to Kyle Boyle, the station manager at Radio UCCS for his uh, help um, with the, the broadcast. And also to Marge Mystery. Marge Mystery no longer is with us. Uh, she was one of the co-founders of uh, uh, Radio UCCS. And uh, we miss her a lot. And uh, we're going to continue today. We have a special guest, uh, Pam Gimmer. And Pam uh, has a really interesting background, and I think everybody's going to really enjoy uh, hearing uh, some of Pam's thoughts about world languages and her ideas. Pam is a, a great teacher of uh, languages and also uh, is also an advocate of a lot of the causes which you're going to talk about. And also she is um, um, very well versed in about anything related to languages, <laughs> and she really keeps on top of things. And still, uh, uh, not only that, but she's very, very active in a variety of things. And I think you're going to learn a lot from Pam. Pam, good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tom. Buenas, buenas, buenas tardes. Eh, ya aquí estamos en la tarde, no? <laughs> sí, buenas tardes. And Pam is uh, uh, going to tell us a little bit about um, what she does and what she did and um, her career in teaching Spanish. I guess that would be the best place to start uh, about uh, your career, Pam, if you could talk about that a little bit and tell the listeners um, some of the interesting uh, highlights of your career. Well, I've had a wonderful career and uh, language has op opened so many, many doors for me. Um, I was actually born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my father was in the Navy during World War II, and that's just where my parents happened to be. But the family is originally from Indiana. And uh, I, my first exposure to the big, wide, wonderful world was being an, uh, an exchange student to Turkey. And I uh, lived with a family on the Asian side of Istanbul, and that was before the bridge between uh, Asia and, and Europe. So it was a very, very wonderful experience. And after that experience, my desire uh, to know more about the world was really, really kindled. Um, and uh, Mexico was a very, was close. I knew that I could return. I could get on a bus or a train and, and, and go back there. But I couldn't swim across the ocean, so <laughs> so I I uh, kind of bargained with my father and uh, asked him if I could 
go to Mexico the following summer after that summer in Turkey. And he was very intelligent. He said, uh, you save your money from your weekly allowance and your babysitting and your work at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And in May, we'll see if, if you have enough, saved enough money, and I will match it to see if you uh, can go to Mexico. And so um, I was able to do that and went to the UNAM, into their school for, for uh, foreigners. And that's how, that really, really put me into Spanish because I'd studied Latin. Mother said that all well-educated young ladies needed to study Latin. So I did my three years of Latin and one year only of Spanish. But my Spanish teacher uh, knew all her grammar and such, but didn't speak the language and didn't uh, emphasize some of the differences in pronunciation. So I spent in, the, in my first host family in Mexico, where my uh, Mexican sister was always saying, yeah, boy, mama, I was always looking around for the B-O-Y instead of, yeah, boy, I'm coming or I'm going, um, mom. That's good. So, and I can tell you a lot of other examples like that where I really, uh, you know, shoe leather doesn't taste very good, but there were some very funny incidences. Now, um, what, did, what, did, what did you think of uh, Mexico City? Yeah, I mean, what's your thoughts about Mexico City? It, I love Mexico City, but, but for a short time. I, I'm, I think I'd have a hard time staying there. Maybe when I was young, I suppose I could have done it fairly easily, maybe, but uh, as the one gets older, I don't know that the noise is, is the traffic and things. I have a hard time, but the culture is extraordinary, you know, in, in Mexico City. What's your thoughts on Mexico City? Would you like to uh, return there? Have you returned a lot to Mexico City? Well, uh, Tom, Mexico City for me is like a magnet. <laughs> you know, and, and every time I get a chance, I, I'm going to go back. And, I've, and I lived there for for. And or, and or studied there for 37 years. Wow, that's so, wonderful. But what a wonderful experience. And, and obviously, any, anybody who can survive Mexico City for 37 years uh, is uh, a very, very special person. That's What's the population in Mexico City? It's 25 million, 30 million? Uh, I'm not really sure right now, but I would have estimated it probably about 25 million. Um it's it to me now it it it's like a big parking lot, <laughs> unfortunately. But I don't have to come and go and when I'm there and be worried uh, about when I get to work and things of this nature. So I can go and enjoy the company of my comadres. Yes, take it. Yes, comadres, and um, it, it's just uh, such a joy and see the young people that. Uh, with whom my my children grew up. They were champion swimmers and represented Mexico internationally. Um, wow. No. Swimming. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I was very deeply ingrained in the, in, in the culture. I exported Mexican handcrafts and also got my um, uh, uh, licencia de locutora, uh, my broadcasting license. Oh, for goodness I, sake. I, I don't particularly enjoy being on the air. 
I found that out very quickly. You're doing very well, by the way. I can tell you have, have experience in this. You're doing very, very well. I, I like the production end of it. So uh, I worked for Radio VIP, which was a CBS affiliate, and it was the only um, English-speaking radio station at that time in uh, Mexico. And what I did was write the national news for the uh, announcers. But when they weren't there, I had to go on the air. And no one can go on the air without a license or the station can lose its license if that happens. And uh, that was a, a lot of fun. And, of course, it kept me very current with what was happening uh, politically, especially in Mexico at that time. And uh, what's your brought, uh, brought, what is your favorite uh, place to visit in Mexico City? If you had to pick a place for being your your favorite place, what would you say it is as far as visiting? Maybe the Museo de Antropología, Chapultepec, uh, uh, the Parque, you think? La Plaza de las Tres Culturas. Okay, okay. Muy uh, bien. Uh -huh. That particular geographic spot uh, is is very exciting to me because it rep it's representative of 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 Mexico historically. You have the the ruins, the Aztec or, uh, ruins uh, on one side, and the uh, uh, church in the background, which represents the colonial period, those five hundred years of colonial domination. And then right next to it on one side, you have the, the building that used to be the Mexican um, uh, Secretaria de Relaciones Exteriores, the Mexican Foreign Relations uh, building. They still own that, but uh, they've moved their headquarters uh, downtown. And then in back of that, you see the multifamiliares, all of the apartments of Tlalcelolco, which uh, were a product of of uh, the Pan American, uh, a Pan American effort launched by the Kennedys to build public housing in the Americas. And um, of course, it's very famous for its political uprising too. But, but the history that's represented there is, uh, to me, this is Mexico. And another monument that I particularly like is the uh, Monumento uh, de la Raza, the monument to the, the, the mixture of the races that stands mm -hmm. take place after conquest, which is uh, very close, actually, to the Plaza de las, las Tres Culturas. I do remember two, two of my favorite restaurants. One was um, Sanborns by the uh, Zocalo. But, you know, oh, my first date. Yes, and the, the, the Leyenda there, that famous Leyenda. And then also, I, uh, yes, see, La Casa de Azulejos. And then my favorite place was the Cafe Tacuba, which was right behind Bellas Artes. And, uh, you know, years ago when we had the, the program in San Luis Potosí for teachers, Spanish teachers, I don't know if you remember that or not, but, uh, Russ Salmon and I did the program. And Russ introduced me to it, and uh, 
he just loved that restaurant. I mean, it was like, if he didn't get there, you know, it was not good. So, and it was a delightful place. Yeah. Like me, every time I go to Mexico, I have to go to see the Ballet Folklorico de Amalia Hernandez. Yes. Uh, rest in peace, but her daughter has taken over that company. And also the National Folklorico, uh, Ballet Folklorico. But speaking of the Café Tacuba, my father-in-law was the subsecretario or the assistant secretary for Segunda Enseñanza. Mm-hmm. That would be junior high education mm-hmm as we know it in the United States. And he and his cronies uh, frequented very often the Café Tacuba, and he played the guitar. Oh, and, for goodness sake. And uh, uh, that was often where they met on Saturday mornings for breakfast. And they, they also, on the weekends, they always had, had the uh, Estudiantina groups in, singing and, and entertaining. So it was just a lovely, lovely place. Um, well, tell the listeners what you're doing. Uh, well, tell tell the listeners a little bit about your career because you uh, you taught quite a variety of levels, right, over your career. Yes, yes, and, and I actually started my teaching career after doing student teaching in Colorado in Denver. I actually started it at the American School in Mexico City, and uh, I found myself teaching Spanish as a second language. Imagine that. But I was part of the Spanish as a Second Language program that uh, received the, uh, the the people from many countries all over the world uh, to teach them Spanish. And I had the beginning levels at fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. It was a combined class to begin with. What, school, I, what school was that? This was the American School American in Mexico school. City okay. in Tacubaya. Okay. And... Um, then uh, later I had a second, third grade combination and talked about a challenge with one prince and one right and they're supposed to be learning cursive. That was uh, quite a challenge. But, um, but also uh, I, I decided about the time we were having uh, going to have a family that uh, I didn't want to be dependent on just being able to work at the American school. So I actually became a resident mm-hmm. and a and uh, I could not work for five years. You know, people complain about, you know, some of these regulations, but actually they're, they're reciprocal in most countries. And um, so during those five years, I continued to work as a volunteer for at the American School, and I gave classes to adults of, of cultural orientation and language and uh, took a lot of wonderful ladies on field trips uh, while their husbands were, their executive level husbands were all at work. And um, I exported Mexican handcraft, which took me all over the country, um, uh, purchasing, purchasing items and, and going into some of the artisans' homes, which I always found fascinating. That, that, uh, that in itself, right? Could you tell the oh, listeners what that entails? Because... Uh, I, I several times over the years did get to go visit some of the the art the art artisanal people. They were just wonderful, and they were just it was like a whole different, um, I, it, just a different different world, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And usually the whole family is in, involved in making the handcraft, and children of the artisans grow up 
becoming artisans as they they whittle away at wood or form uh, uh, figures from clay or whatever the family's into. One of the most interesting families was actually from Tonala in the state of Jalisco, a family that I got to know very well, that imitated um, some of the huichol art making the yarn um, decorations that you put on Christmas trees. And, uh, I mean, it would take hours to, well, if I were to do it and, and to do it as well as they do, it would take, it would take me hours. But they whipped those decorations out on double-sided. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and people wanted to buy them for five cents a piece or the equivalent. And um, uh, they sacrificed a great deal in order to um, always thinking about their children and providing a better life for their children, even though the children become involved in those family businesses. One of the families that moved from Tonala to Mexico City actually lived in the um, in the parking lot area of La Ciudadela and uh, bathed in public uh, bathrooms. But uh, they have four children that have graduated from the UNAM. One is now uh, an animator for Disney. Oh, for Disney. I always checked on their, their grade cards and, and they knew that if I was coming, they would, they were expected to show them to me. And, um, that's amazing. That's good. They bought, uh, apartments and, and, and such nearby and they, but the family still continues to have a couple of, uh, 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 handicraft stands within La Ciudadela. So I can always find them when I go back, which is, uh, it's a source of, of delight for me to uh, catch up on them. The Huicholi Indians, I, I recall one time when I left San Luis Potosí and we went up to Real de Catorce, which was uh, in the mountains. It was this beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, it was kind of considered a ghost town. The, actually, there were, there were legends about a ghost. But the Huicholi Indians would bring uh, their kids there the, the the males the males and when they got to be 15 years old 16 they would bring them there in October for uh, uh, to show that they were mature and, and going to be enter into manhood and they would smoke peyote and uh, but oh they, <laughs> peyote yes it was uh, every October they would show up and uh, but a very interesting group of group of people. Um, Tell us a little bit about, I remember you, you did a lot of work with INEL, right? In Indiana and in the United States, and et cetera. Yes, I had the privilege of, uh, of working with NEL at the national level, the national um, uh, network for early language learning, and uh, was one of the founders of the Indiana NEL group, uh, the Indiana Network for Early Language Learning which includes all languages, and I have a real passion for uh, the introduction of languages as early as possible. Um, but you, it, to, for, for the listeners, that that's something that uh, uh, really, really we need to pay attention to. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the language programs in many, many places in the United States, we need to have more programs in elementary schools, right? 
And uh, we have some, but we sure have room to improve. And the the other day, somebody asked me about Marty Simmer. Do you remember her? Oh, yes, from Colorado. Now, is she okay? I haven't seen her. I I really don't know. I have not seen her. uh, I have no idea. But she she was a great leader as well. Yes, and she was the president of National NEL at one time. Uh, Great leader. And and when during her presidency, actually, I ran into a former student. I was his first Spanish teacher at the American School in Mexico City. And he, at that time, was a vice president for the United States of Santillana and has uh, continued his career. And his Spanish is absolutely superb. Um, He came to Mexico that was the first time he was abroad, but his family went on to Argentina and Colombia with his father, who was with, I believe, with IBM, if I remember correctly, and then on to Spain. And um, so he actually grew up and did most of his his studies, if not all of them, um, in universities in Spanish-speaking countries. Um, Steve Arban is his name. And um, at one of the language conferences, he recognized me as a as a grown man. I would not have recognized him. Well, you did. I know you and Marty, and uh, that was quite a group of leaders in, the, in that epi, in that uh, particular time frame uh, at, at uh, the national level of, of, of enthusiasm that you guys used to have and still do. You, you, you still have your incredible enthusiasm. But we need more of that today. I I think, uh, you know, we need, I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm, but you never have enough, you know? And and by the way, uh, Tom, uh, if anyone, uh, the nominations are open right now on a national level for the first vice president Mm -hmm. who would uh, assume the role of, of president. If anyone who's listening might be interested, please get in touch with, uh, Rita Oleska, who is also a past president and head of the nominating committee, because they are in search of a treasurer and a uh, first vice president for the national organization. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that. And if anybody out there is interested, right, uh, who, how would they get, into, would you get in touch with whom now? I, uh, Rita Oleska. Rita Oleska, okay. However, they could probably get in touch with with the organization just by uh, Googling NEL, N-N-E-L-L, National Network for Early Language Learning, on the Internet and be able to find the proper uh, channels to make those contacts. But I'm really excited about what's happening in that vein in Indiana. In 2015, in the legislative session, we were able to uh, obtain a million dollars from the legislature uh, explicitly for the purpose of, of, of planting seed money or, or re- awarding seed money for the formation of dual language and immersion programs. Um, right away that was acted upon and six uh, schools uh, were awarded dollars to begin that process at kindergarten and first grade level. And I believe there are eight uh, schools or school districts that are participating right now. Uh, the majority are in Spanish and one is in Chinese. And that the Chinese one happens to be in Batesville, Indiana. And uh, 
Are uh, the other are the other ones spread around the state? Yes, they are very much spread about the state. Well, congratulations! Um, I I had no idea, and it it is I I don't even remember seeing it. And was it in the newspaper? Did it hit the papers? It probably um, did. I don't know. I don't know how much uh, publicity has been given to it. Um, I'm glad you mentioned this because we probably need to be reaching out and doing some features on it. But uh, oh, yes, the, that's that's a wonderful thing. That's incredible. Congratulations. That is just uh, superb. Wow. Well, it, it's really even more interesting, Tom, because that legislation requesting funds, and you always have to go through ways and means with funds, which is, can be a real challenge. But um, it was combined with other legislation that, that had to do with the awarding high school students with the seal of biliteracy. Uh, if they could prove, if they can um, uh, prove proficiency at a certain level in both English and another language. Um, of course, Indiana always has to put its special stamp on things, but that certificate is uh, going to be called, or is being called, uh, the Certificate of Multilingual Proficiency in the state of Indiana. And um, the the Global Learning Advisory Council has just reviewed the document for its implementation at the 1st of October, and uh, it has been presented now for the governors to sign off on so that graduates in 2017 in the schools that elect to recognize their students uh, in this manner will be able to do so. They, uh, many of the exams that students take to do this or to obtain this uh, certificate are the students take in their senior year. Um, the AP, the IB exams, etc. So um, that's why it's become a certificate and not a seal. But the certificate will have the seal on it and they receive a beautiful medal. And more importantly, their progress and proficiency will be denoted on their transcripts as they go on and for work and for uh, colleagues, this is, this could be very meaningful. Well, congratulations. I, I guess you certainly deserve the title of world language advocate, right? I mean, well, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's my newfound place, I yes. think, in the world language community with our, I've had the opportunity to speak to uh, the, the education committees in the House and the Senate uh, on a state level. And, um, I'm working with IFLTA, the Indiana Foreign Language Teachers Association, on their advocacy committee, as well as uh, Central State mm -hmm. Advocacy uh, Wonderful. Committee. That's wonderful. Now, the uh, and you always did a lot. Now you're doing more than a lot. So <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I, can, I could never think of anybody that did the advocacy work over the years that you did in the profession. And uh, I know when... I, see, I would see you at conferences. It was astounding what you were doing. And for the listeners that don't know this, but uh, Pam was busy, 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 plus teaching and doing about 8 million things and was able to do it, which is, is very, very challenging to say the least. And uh, well, we certainly congratulate you for all your wonderful work. That's astounding. Um, can you? I'd like to encourage more retired teachers to um, to assist 
in these efforts because, you know, you say wonderful things and accomplished. While I was working, I didn't have the time to do uh, what I'm doing now. Yes, I could write a letter now and then, but I couldn't take off from my classroom and speak to legislators and at the last minute go to those committee meetings that are sometimes you find out in the morning and you have to be there in the afternoon. It Legislation is not an easy process, and I've learned so much. But um, we we need our voice needs to be heard, definitely. Yes, and, and, and you do such a great job with that. Now I'm going to ask you a, a question that um, deals with um, foreign uh, world language study, and that is uh, how can we increase enrollments in world language study? And that means really a, a little bit about perhaps uh, Chinese, Japanese, German, uh, French, uh, Latin, and Spanish, uh, due to the popularity of the language in our own country, seems to take care of itself. But some of the other languages are, are really at times have a struggle, uh, especially French maybe or German in different schools. What, what can we do to uh, get our message across that we need to support all languages. Um, well, I, I, I think that seeking partnerships with the with commerce is extremely important in this vein. Looking at our Japanese automakers, for example, looking at our German uh, companies that are um, in the pharmaceuticals into uh, printing. And, um, and other industries, also the auto industry. Um, we, we need their support because they know how important the uh, language usage is. And I think also we need to, in our classrooms, uh, really turn them into much more proficiency-based uh, salones or, or, or classrooms because I, I don't think that our students are seeing the value. Once they see the value, and this happened to me, I'm no exception as an individual. Once I saw the value uh, and the, ap the application and all the doors that it opened and how much being able to speak a second language enriched my life um, on all levels uh, and in any profession, I don't care what the profession is, if one speaks more than one language, um, it, it opens doors. It, it, again, it, at all skill levels, it opens doors too, uh, from from the bottom up and the and the top down. Uh, it makes people more valuable in the workplace. And I think what they're seeing with this uh, seal of biliteracy in other states where it's been passed before in Indiana is that the enrollment at the upper levels is increasing. But that means that teacher preparation has to increase in terms of, uh, of linguistic mastery. And, and, and that said, if we're going to begin these uh, programs at the elementary level, we need teachers who can sustain education uh, throughout an entire day in a language that is not English. It, it, we're finding um, the research that they have conducted in at Forest Glen here in Indianapolis in Lawrence Township um, has shown them that uh, they need to spend 
a disproportionate amount of time in the target language in the early grades, and that will that diminishes as they um, progress to middle school and high school. But if we're really to uh, establish that basis, uh, much more time has to be spent in the target language, yes. which in that case is Spanish. And, and as you indicated, the teacher preparation. One of the interesting things about teacher preparation that I don't think they give enough, um, we we don't think about it perhaps enough. It's it's there. It's a double preparation almost because it's preparing linguistically to teach, but it's also uh, preparing to promote world languages. And you have to be a promoter of, of languages to teach effectively world languages. And in many schools, it's not required, right? And uh, so we run into the situation that if teachers don't promote the language well, their enrollments can suffer. So I think sometimes we neglect in a teacher preparation this promotion idea too, you know, of uh, motivation. Uh, how do we motivate these kids to keep studying languages, right? Travel. Travel is a big motivator and putting students into situations where they actually have to use the language or are in contact with the language. Um, even if they're, they're not at a, an, a, they're not expressing themselves well yet, they need to hear it. And the, and the, spend enough time just listening and those fleeting that fleeting time of a, of a classroom period it doesn't cut the mustard but while we are there the the students must be hearing the language regardless of what it is mm -hmm. uh, so yeah I think what we're talking about is the listening uh, the speaking part the situations that you mentioned where the kids uh, the students speak and we're talking about too a classroom that at times becomes uh, student-centered, you know, that uh, Absolutely. a, a student-centered classroom instead of uh, a teacher-driven classroom. And uh, again, um, by and large, I think most teachers probably are student-centered uh, with their approach. Although, uh, I don't know if there's ever been adequate research done to prove that, you know, or to actually... I think, it, I think it has. Um, as we look at the portfolio uh, examination, I think it's out there. And also the emphasis, there's a lot of emphasis on I can statement. And where the student is, is taking the onus of learning is right. the student where they, I can do this, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I, well, okay, but how are you going to prove this to me? Yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, that is a real key for um, uh, raising the level of proficiency in, with our students. Yes. Now, how would you try to get uh, the students involved creatively? Uh, I mean, what were some of your most successful uh, strategies teaching when you were trying to get the kids creatively involved in, in world language learning? Well, giving students choices. Uh, when it came to, to uh, and involving them in projects, but giving them a series of choices where they they were permitted to use their, their talents and their strengths in order to complete the project. I'm really big on rhyme, rhythm, and repetition. Anything that is uh, catchy that, that helps them to learn uh, also. But 
and 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 just be willing to do whatever it takes to permit comprehension. You know, if I need to stand up on the table, yes, and 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 move around to catch their attention. I mean, I I'll never forget. Tom, I was um, in a mall in uh, Merritt Island, Florida, and I'd had a student because I came from Mexico, Florida, and then back to Indiana um, because my parents had moved to the Space Center area. At any rate, um, he came up to me and he said, are you still going into the classroom with that funky suitcase packed with all those clothes? And I said, I sure am. You know, but anything um, that catches their their attention and permits their creativity too. Um, and creativity, but, do you think? Do you think creativity is a learned thing? Sometimes, I think as you're, you're stating here with all this, uh, these wonderful ideas, that we have to put this background in these options so that kids can have a chance to be creative, right? I mean, that's what it's about. And uh, the creativity factor, uh, sometimes I think we really overlook it uh, because even if people in languages don't become language teachers, they don't, they're not translators or they don't work in government or business with their language, but there's so many things they can learn creatively to carry over to other jobs or other professions, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that, that you brought those up. That that's really good. What teacher inspired you the most when you were in high school and college? What teacher well, or teachers? Actually, uh, you know, as I told you earlier, mother said I had to take those three years of Latin, and uh, which I did. And Mrs. Jensen was my was one of the Latin teachers that I had, but I didn't really appreciate her until I took. Uh, etymology and she taught a class of etymology and I can remember so clearly that there were at least 40 students in the class because there was only one class and so anybody who wanted to take her class and we were preparing for SATs and what have you so everybody if you were college bound you were encouraged to take her class Tom she made us work our tails off every single night with dictionaries and make those connections, those word connections. Um, she was a, a, a little lady, maybe five feet tall, that had five little buns attached to the back of her, her head. I can still see her today, but you did not go to that class or want to go to that class if you hadn't done your homework. Yes. And, and you could here a pin drop yes. in that classroom. She was in absolute total control, and she was so she's probably the most erudite of all of the teachers that I and I had some very good teachers. Um, but uh, what she instilled in in all of us with with regard to playing with words and uh, word roots and suffixes and prefixes and such has served me always. Now, what about today's classroom? What's, uh, what are the two or three great points about the teachers in the classroom today versus 10 years ago? And what about, what are some of the things that aren't so good that we need to fix in the well, classroom? Well, I'd say I, technology is a biggie. 
And um, I, but I, I think that it, it, while it's marvelous, it can never replace the teacher. Uh, but teachers need to be able to use it effectively to make connections, to open their class to, to other classrooms. And, and this can start even if, um, even in elementary schools with our social studies curriculums and such, uh, because in other parts of the world, uh, even though English may not be the first language, in most industrialized uh, nations, English is part of the curriculum uh, from grade one. Or, or at least grade three or four. And um, so I see uh, a Sandy Brown, for example, here in Indianapolis, um, who teaches uh, fifth grade, I believe it is, at one of our elementary schools. And she has those youngsters visiting classrooms all over the world. It's really impressive. And um, uh, so, and, and, it also permits us to find much more realia for students to work with, newspapers, um, interviews. Uh, it, it opens uh, the youngsters' minds up to a different mindset yeah. and yeah. a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing that bothers me about the technology sometimes is that uh, I think it gets overplayed, though. I think the actual learning outcome of what happens is overplayed. And I think that it's important. And I think it's a nice diversion and it's a good place to practice, etc. But it doesn't replace the human being, the live people, <clears throat> the students, the interaction they get when they're in groups, working together, learning together, working as a team. Uh, some of those things, uh, it, it concerns me a little bit that we're, we may lose some of that. And, uh, uh, I talk to the students in class that I have classes, and and this, they say the same thing. Some of them get tired of being on a computer. You know, they talk about they get tired of looking at a screen, or they get bored with typing on the computer, and and missing people talking to live people. Oh, and that's why that when when um, you you asked me a question the other day, advice for young world language teachers today as they're starting out and. Uh, and one of the things I would tell them is to take time and invest in continued professional development. And that can be individual. It can be collective. It means travel, uh, maybe, uh, and, and creating a support system uh, of other young professionals or seasoned professionals, making those professional uh, connections that serve as a support system for what we're doing because let's face it, in rural Indiana or rural Colorado or rural wherever, there are the majority of the population around us doesn't identify with all the wonderful experiences that we have had, you and I as language teachers, to know much more about the world. And we have to gently encourage that and with them and help them to see the world through a different lens without doing so in a very abrupt or offensive fashion. But um, as, as we do so and do let our voice be heard, it's the opportunity to help others. Also, I think it's important that we admit uh, to what we don't know or need to improve and, and seek the opportunities to do so. Um, 
Yeah, can I, can I say? You don't walk into the classroom with all the answers. Yes. And season teachers don't have all the answers. And, and, and change is happening all around us. So I think that. Well said, well said, very well said. Excellent. The, the, uh, the interesting thing of this, of what you just said too, is that, um, this, this idea of having an open mind and always being, always looking for better ways to do things. And I think if you look back in history, the last 20, 25 years in, in world language education, the great teachers always changed. They always were looking for new things. And, uh, you talked about how they, the, the teachers that travel, that kept up top of things in the world and, and the language and the cultures and, and they also uh, did uh, a lot with um, um, just really, really um, going to the conferences, simple little things, going to a state conference, going to these little things that we, many of you and I, we went to a lot of conferences, right? And still do. But, but think of all you learned by all the people you, you, you network with and all the people, the, the teachers. And uh, so, you know, it's it's just this professionalism you brought up cannot be emphasized enough. You know that it needs to be probably pushed a lot more than it is. You know, by oh, the schools. We need to we need to become uh, members of the professional organizations that support us. And um, I mean, I'm really privileged now to be able to be a voice for you outside the classroom um, in circles that make decisions that affect. Uh, uh, language teachers uh, within the ESSA legislation right now with the Every Student uh, Succeeds Act mm-hmm. or Be Successful Act it, there needs to be a world language voice um, because we are languages are connectors just as English connects us through all the disciplines mm-hmm. Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, German does the same thing because knowledge transfers from one language to another it does it definitely does it's the same it's the same ball Mm -hmm. called by a different name (laughs) yes it is Uh, now let's suppose that spanish and (laughs) and and i don't know what what a ball is in lots of other languages but i think it's something similar in french i can't remember exactly but uh so you're if you were telling someone who's going to be a world language teacher today, just starting out, what advice would you give them? The three items that you would tell them to work on? Well, again, take time and invest in, in continued professional development and create your support system. I would uh, encourage them to attend professional conferences and become a member of the state organization and the language-specific organizations that support them to immerse yourself regularly in a circle of people who speak the language so that you don't get stale, so that you continue to expand your own vocabulary and practical working knowledge of whatever language it it is that that you uh, teach. Uh, Cultivate that. It, it, It doesn't happen. You know, they say if you don't use it, you lose it. And um, so constantly we need to be speaking, listening, reading, writing, whatever those languages are to perfect our own skills and um, 
and, and I strongly encourage interdisciplinary um, cooperation and collaboration where you're uh, working from your perspective with the social studies teacher, the science teacher, the English teachers, and uh, figuring out things where where everybody has a, uh, a piece. Uh, a good example of that might be uh, an international um, a focus on on countries around the world, just as simple as that, or artists around the world, or music around the world, or what have you, where you are, and, and travel. Um, there's a teacher who's taking an interdisciplinary group, a teacher from Indianapolis, to Iceland with the science teachers and, uh, and, and students and parents, and, and it, it's going to be a wonderful learning experience for everyone. Um, and who speaks Icelandic? I certainly don't, no. but I'm sure that they'll all pick up some phrases. And uh, again, English will be the, the, the language of, of learning basically on that trip, but how wonderful that all of these elements are coming together. Pam, I really appreciate you being on the show and the for the listeners, uh, what an honor to have you here with all your wonderful experiences, a wonderful career that continues on. And thank goodness it does that you're sharing all your wonderful ideas and thoughts on language uh, study with the, with the whole world. And uh, thank you for being on the show. And I, I've just been a wonderful uh, Fuente de Ideas and a Masi Masi and uh, just astounding. So. Uh, I appreciate it very much, and uh, I will be seeing you hopefully soon at a conference, I bet. Maybe IFLTA. I hope so. IFLTA. Uh, IFLTA is coming up soon, and it's almost in your backyard, Tom, so no excuses. <laughs> yes. We to see you there. I will be there for sure. And, and, and you've been so wonderful in bringing in specialists from other parts of the world. From I understand you're bringing in a teacher from Cuba. You've brought uh, El Bueno Loco. To us, who does uh, the drink, uh, who does rap in <laughs> Spanish, and he's just yes. delightful and, and so motivational for for so many of our students, and and encouraged travel of, and and continued preparation for teachers. Um, you know, I have a suitcase, and I will travel. Uh, <laughs> yes, and you know, uh, it it will be fun to see you at the conference and. Uh, uh, are you going to go to Ackfeld? Are you going to be in Boston or not? No, or yes? No, I'm. I'm I, it's very difficult for me to um, uh, be away uh, overnight. Yes. As much as I would like to uh, see old friends and yes. new acquaintances in in Boston, I'm I'm not planning to do that. But I am going to try to go to to Chicago for CSC. Right. And for anyone who's um, involved in dual language or immersion programs, I highly recommend NABE, the National Association of, of uh, Bilingual Educators. Um, and is that in Texas? It is, isn't it? I, well, oh, no, they, New Mexico. they meet all, all over, and yeah. there's a, kind of an outgrowth, uh, outgrowth of NABE that does meet annually in the fall in New Mexico that's called Cosecha, uh, Cosecha, Cosecha. or the Harvest yes. uh, Conference. Uh, but um, I, I've learned so very much from, 
from from my peers and you know we don't have to reinvent the wheel no no, no. language teachers are so generous in sharing yes. their ideas and and if we if we just take the time to listen and learn from each other mm-hmm. uh, we can make our lives a lot easier and um uh, so going to conferences uh so many things I've learned from others and have incorporated into the things that worked for me. But, um, and, and I've always given credit to those who have yes. taught those yeah. things. I can me. think of uh, nobody who's worked as hard in this profession as you have. And uh, you have just been astounding. Oh, I'm, I'm not, not. Yes. You've been astounding. You have been incredible. Uh, listen, I'm going to uh, see you and I at IFLTA for the listeners. The Indiana Conference is uh, na- a week from now, a week and a half, November 4th or so. And then uh, the ACFL Conference starts, I believe, the 18th of November in Boston. So uh, thank you, all the listeners, for being with us. And uh, Pam, a special thank you to you for being on the show. And uh, we will catch up with everybody soon. And if everything goes well, Julian, uh, my amigo de Cuba, I'm going to have on the show. So everybody can meet him on the show. So, uh, so everybody have a great, great week and the rest of the week. And a lo mejor que descansen, try to rest, and vamos a estar en contacto at the próximo show. Thank you for being with us, everybody. Y hasta pronto. ¿Cómo? Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Feliz Día de las Brujas, eh? Así dicen. O Día de los Muertos también. De los Muertos también, ¿verdad? Okay, and we'll catch up there, everybody. Thanks for being with us. Bye. My pleasure. Ciao. Bye.